Chapter forty six of Faulkner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Faulkner by Mary Shelley. Chapter forty six. The prisoner and his faithful companion knew nothing of these momentous changes. Day by day Elizabeth withdrew from the fire to the only window in her father's room, moving her embroidery table close to it. Her eyes turned, however, to the sky, instead of to the flowers she was working, and leaning her cheek upon her hand, she perpetually watched the clouds. Gerard was already, she fancied, on the waste of waters, yet the clouds did not change their direction. They all sped one way, and that contrary to his destination. Thus she passed her mornings, and when she returned to her own abode, where her heart could more entirely spend its thoughts on her lover and his voyage, her lonely room was no longer lonely, nor the gloomy season any longer gloomy. More than happy, a breathless rapture quickened the beatings of her heart, as she told over again and again neville's virtues and dearer than all his claims on her gratitude falkner saw with pleasure the natural effects of love and hope add to the cheerfulness of his beloved child diffuse a soft charm over her person her motions and her voice and impart a playful tenderness to her before rather serious manners youth love and happiness are so very beautiful in their conjunction god grant he thought i do not mar this fair creature's life may she be happier than alethea if man can be worthy of her gerard neville surely is as he turned his eyes silently from the book that apparently occupied him and contemplated her pensive countenance whose expression showed that she was wrapped in yet enjoying her thoughts retrospect made him sad he went over his own life its clouded morning the glad beams that broke out to dissipate those clouds and the final setting amid tempests and wreck was all life like this must all be disappointed hope baffled desires lofty imaginations engendering fatal acts and bringing the proud thus low would she at his age view life as he did a weary wilderness a tangled endless labyrinth leading by one rough path or another to a bitter end he hoped not her innocence must receive other reward from heaven it was on a day as they were thus occupied falkner refrained from interrupting elizabeth's reverie which he felt was sweeter to her than any converse and appeared absorbed in reading suddenly she exclaimed the wind has changed dear father indeed it has changed it is favourable now do you not feel how much colder it is the wind has got to the north there is a little east in it his voyage will not be a long one if this change only lasts falkner answered her by a smile but it was humiliating to think of the object of that voyage and her cheerful voice announcing that it was to be prosperous struck he knew not why a saddening chord at this moment he heard the bolts of the chamber door pushed back and the key turn in the lock the turnkey entered followed by another man who hesitated as he came forward and then as he glanced at the inhabitants of the room drew back saying there is some mistake mr falkner is not here 
But for his habitual self-command, Falkner had started up and made an exclamation. So surprised was he to behold the person who entered, for he recognized his visitant on the instant. He himself was far more changed by the course of years. Time, sickness, and remorse had used other than Praxitilian art, and had defaced the lines of grace and power which had marked him many years ago, before his hands had dug Alethea's grave. He was indeed surprised to see who entered, but he showed no sign of wonder, only saying with a calm smile, "'No, there is no mistake. I am the man you seek.' The other now apparently recognized him, and advanced timidly and in confusion. The turnkey left them, and Faulkner then said, "'Osborne, you deserve my thanks for this, but I did believe that it would come to this.' "'No,' said Osborne, "'I do not deserve thanks. I—' and he looked confused and glanced towards Elizabeth. Faulkner followed his eye, and understanding his look, said, "'You do not fear being betrayed by a lady, Osborne. You are safe here as in America. I see how it is. You are here under a false name. No one is aware that you are the man who, a few weeks ago, refused to appear to save a fellow-creature from death.' "'I see no way to do that now,' replied Osborne hesitatingly. I do not come for that. I come. I could not stay away. I thought something might be done. Elizabeth, my love, said Faulkner, you at least will thank Mr. Osborne for his spontaneous services. You are watching the clouds which were to bear along the vessel towards him, and beyond our hopes he is already here. Elizabeth listened breathlessly. She feared to utter a word, lest it should prove a dream. Now, Gathering Faulkner's meaning, she came forward, and with all a woman's grace addressed the trembling man, who already looked at the door as if he longed to be on the other side, fearful that he was caught in his own toils, for, as Hoskins said, the fascinated prey had wheeled yet nearer to his fate involuntarily. He had been unable to resist his desire to see Faulkner, and learn how it was with him but he still resolved not to risk anything. He had represented himself to the magistrates as coming from Osborne, showing false papers, and a declaration drawn up by him at Washington, and attested before official men there, setting forth Faulkner's innocence. He had brought this over to see if it would serve his benefactor, and had thus got access to him. Such was his reliance on the honor of his patron, that he had not hesitated in placing himself in his power, well aware that he should not be detained by him against his will. For still his heart quailed, and his soul shrunk from rendering him the service that would save his life. His manner revealed his thoughts to the observant Faulkner. But Elizabeth, less well-read in men's hearts, younger and more sanguine, saw in his arrival the completion of her hopes, and she thanked him with so much warmth, and with such heartfelt praises of his kindness and generosity, that Osborne began to think that his greatest difficulty would be in resisting her fascination and disappointing her wishes. He stammered out at last some lame excuses, all he could do consistently with safety, they might command. He had shown this by coming over. More could not be asked, could not be expected. He himself, God knew, was innocent, 
So was Mr. Faulkner, of the crime he was charged with. But he had no hand whatever in the transaction. He was not in his confidence. He had not known even who the lady was. His testimony, after all, must be worth nothing, for he had nothing to tell, and for this he was to expose himself to disgrace and death. Acquiring courage at the sound of his own voice, Osborne grew fluent. Elizabeth drew back. She looked anxiously at Faulkner, and saw a cloud of displeasure and scorn gather over his countenance. She put her hand on his, as if to check the outbreak of his indignation. Yet she herself, as Osborne went on, turned her eyes flashing with disdain upon him. The miserable fellow cowed before the glances of both. He shifted from one foot to the other. He dared not look up. But he knew that their eyes were on him, and he felt the beams transfix him and wither up his soul. There are weak men who yield to persuasion. There are weaker who are vanquished by reproaches and contempt. Of such was Osborne. His fluency faded into broken accents. His voice died away. As a last effort, he moved towards the door. "'Enough, sir,' said Faulkner, in a calm, contemptuous voice. "'And now be gone. Hasten away. Do not stop till you have gained the shore, the ship, the waves of the Atlantic.' Be assured I shall not send for you a second time. I have no desire to owe my life to you. If I could save your life, Mr. Faulkner, he began, but— We will not argue that point, interrupted Faulkner. It is enough that it is generally asserted that your testimony is necessary for my preservation. Were my crime as great as it is said to be, it would find its punishment in that humiliation— "'Go, sir. You are safe. I would not advise you to loiter here. Return to America. Walls have ears in abodes like these. You may be forced to save a fellow-creature against your will. Hasten then away. Go. Eat. Drink and be merry. Whatever betides me, not even my ghost shall haunt you. Meanwhile, I would beg you no longer to insult me by your presence. Be gone at once.' "'You are angry, sir,' said Osborne timidly. "'I hope not,' replied Faulkner, who had indeed felt his indignation rise and checked himself. "'I should be very sorry to feel anger against a coward. "'I pity you. You will repent this when too late?' "'Oh, do not say so,' cried Elizabeth. "'Do not say he will repent when too late.' But now, in time, I am sure that he repents. Do you not, Mr. Osborne? You are told that your fears are vain. You know Mr. Faulkner is far too noble to draw you into danger to save himself. You know even that he does not fear death, but ignominy, eternal, horrible disgrace. And the end, the frightful end, prepared. Even he must recoil from that. And you... No, you cannot in cold blood, and with calm forethought, make him over to it. You cannot. I see that you cannot. Forbear, Elizabeth, interrupted Faulkner, in a tone of displeasure. I will not have my life, nor even my honor, begged by you. Let the worst come, the condemnation, the hangman. I can bear all, except the degradation of supplicating such a man as that. "'I see how it is,' 
said Osborne. Yes, you do with me as you will. I feared this. And yet I thought myself firm. Do with me as you will. Call the jailer. I will surrender myself. He turned pale as death and tottered to a chair. Falconer turned his back on him. Go, sir, he repeated. I reject your sacrifice. No, father, no, cried Elizabeth eagerly. Say not so. You accept it, and I also, with thanks and gratitude. Yet it is no sacrifice, Mr. Osborne. I assure you that it is not. At least the sacrifice you fear. All is far easier than you think. There is no prison for you. Your arrival need not yet be known. Your consent being obtained, a pardon will be at once granted. You are to appear as a witness, not as a... Her voice faltered. She turned to Faulkner, her eyes brimming over with tears. Osborne caught the infection. He was touched. He was cheered also by Elizabeth's assurances, which he hoped that he might believe. Hitherto he had been too frightened and bewildered to hear accurately even what he had been told. He fancied that he must be tried. The pardon might or might not come afterward. The youth, earnestness, and winning beauty of Elizabeth moved him, and now that his fears were a little allayed, he could see more clearly. He was even more touched by the appearance of his former benefactor. Dignity and yet endurance, suffering as well as fortitude, marked his traits. There was something so innately noble, and yet so broken by fortune, expressed in his commanding yet attenuated features and person. He was a wreck that spoke so plainly of the glorious being he had once been. There was so much majesty in his decay, such real innocence sat on his high and open brow, streaked though it was with disease, such lofty composure in his countenance, pale from confinement and suffering, that Osborne felt a mixture of respect and pity that soon rose above every other feeling. Reassured with regard to himself, and looking on his patron with eyes that caught the infection of Elizabeth's tears, he came forward. "'I beg your pardon, Mr. Faulkner,' he said, "'for my doubts, for my cowardice, if you please so to name it. I request you to forget it, and to permit me to come forward in your behalf. I trust you will not disdain my offer, though late it comes, I assure you, from my heart.' There was no mock dignity about Faulkner. A sunny smile broke over his features as he held out his hand to Osborne. "'And from my heart I thank you,' he replied, "'and deeply regret that you are to suffer any pain through me. Mine was the crime, you the instrument. It is hard, very hard, that you should be brought to this through your complacence to me. Real danger for you there is none.' or I would die this worst death rather than expose you to it. Elizabeth, now in all gladness, wrote a hasty note, desiring Mr. Colville to come to them, that all might at once be arranged. And Gerard, dear father, she said, we must write to Mr. Neville to recall him from his far and fruitless journey. Mr. Neville is in Liverpool, said Osborne. I saw him the very day before I came away. He doubtless was on the lookout for me, and I dare swear Hoskins betrayed me. We must be on our guard. Fear nothing from Mr. Neville, replied Elizabeth. 
He is too good and generous not to advocate justice and truth. He is convinced of my father's innocence. They were interrupted. The solicitor entered. Osborne's appearance was beyond his hopes. He could not believe in so much good fortune. He had begun to doubt, suspect, and fear. He speedily carried off his godsend, as he named him, to talk over and bring into form his evidence, and all that appertained to his surrender, thus leaving Faulkner with his adopted child. Such a moment repaid for much, for Elizabeth's hopes were high, and she knelt before Faulkner, embracing his knees, thanking heaven in a rapture of gratitude. He also was thankful, yet mortification and wounded pride struggled in his heart with a sense of gratitude for unhoped-for preservation. His haughty spirit rebelled against the obligation he owed to so mean a man as Osborne. It required hours of meditation, of reawakened remorse for Alethea's fate, of renewed wishes that she should be vindicated before all the world, of remembered love for the devoted girl at his feet, to bring him back from the tumult of contending passions to the fortitude and humility which he at every moment strove to cultivate. Elizabeth's sweet voice dispelled such storms, and rewarded him for the serenity he had last regained. It was impossible not to feel sympathy in her happiness, and joy in possessing the affection of so gentle, yet so courageous and faithful a heart. Elizabeth's happiness was even more complete when she left him, and sat in her solitary room, there where Gerard had so lately visited her, and his image and her gratitude towards him mingled more with her thoughts. Her last act that night was to write to him, to tell him what had happened. It was her note that he received at Liverpool on the eve of his second departure, and which had changed his purpose. He had immediately set out for London to communicate the good tidings to Lady Cecil. End of chapter 46